Hello, and welcome to this FRDH, First Rough Draft of History podcast. I'm Michael Goldfarb. A week ago, half in and out of shallow sleep on an overnight flight back to London from a family visit in America, I had a flash of an idea. I would put this podcast out every day until the Brexit deadline of October 31st, a spoken first rough draft of history. Reality, in the form of severe jet lag, and the pace at which the Conservative Party and a particular idea of Englishness, pragmatic, phlegmatic, unraveled, killed that ambition stony dead. I kept starting scripts and found that by the time I'd thought up a clever lead, my ideas had been overtaken by events. So I gave up the idea of a daily podcast and instead decided to try and summarize all the notes I made during the first week of September 2019, when Britain's Conservative Party, the self-styled natural party of government, the greatest election-winning machine of, depending on who's doing the counting, the last 100, 150, 200, or 250 years, had a full-scale nervous breakdown. No metaphor. People behaved in ways that might, in other circumstances, lead to their being committed to a hospital for observation. After Boris Johnson expelled 21 conservative MPs from the party, including Nicholas Soames, grandson of Winston Churchill, and Philip Hammond, who just two months ago was Chancellor of the Exchequer, for voting in favor of legislation that would stop the UK leaving the European Union with no deal at all on October 31st, when the current negotiation extension is slated to end, radical Brexiter Alistair Heath, the editor of the conservative-supporting Sunday Telegraph, wrote, The Tory party is dead. Long live the Tory party. The seismic realignment that was supposed to take place in 2016, at the time of the Brexit referendum, is finally upon us, and a tougher, rougher, non-deferential conservatism is making its explosive debut. While much of the country and the rest of the world saw a bumbling new prime minister, Johnson, without a majority in the House of Commons to pass his legislation, Heath saw a man decisively dealing in a realpolitik kind of way with the situation he had created and inherited when he announced in 2016 that he was a candidate to replace David Cameron, who resigned after losing the Brexit referendum, and then decided not to stand after all, allowing Theresa May to become prime minister, and then spent most of the ensuing three years undermining her from inside and then outside her cabinet. Now, much to Alistair Heath's delight, he was making up for lost time. This week, he has flushed out his hardcore opponents, Heath wrote, adding, his party was already split de facto, if not de jure. He was always leading a minority government in all but name. The sackings merely formalized this. Johnson's purging the old guard with a dictatorial ruthlessness but without the bloodshed, was, Heath concluded, breathtaking in its ambition. He would take over a fatally divided Tory party with no majority, forcibly reform it in his image, and gain a pro-Brexit majority. For all of the madness of the past few days, I'm still predicting that he will pull it off. Hmm. Since Heath penned those words, Johnson's brother, Joe, a Tory MP and government minister, resigned and quit politics, citing his inability to reconcile family loyalty and the national interest. And the pace of disintegration has not slackened. I started writing this podcast yesterday, and when I woke up this morning, a cabinet secretary, Amber Rudd, had resigned. This is not the Conservative Party I know. 
I arrived in Britain 34 years ago in the high noon of Margaret Thatcher's premiership, just before her third electoral victory, when hubris took hold of her and unbalanced the combination of qualities that made her a transformational figure. Thatcher was an oxymoron, a radical and a conservative. She was also shrewd and pragmatic. In her inner circle of advisors were men, all men in those days, who disagreed with her most radical views. They were comparative centrists, one-nation Tories. Yes, it is almost our divine right to rule, is their attitude, but we must govern on behalf of the whole nation, not just our party, or even a narrow faction within our party. Thatcher listened to them frequently, and was capable of parking her own radical ideas and tactics to the side when they pointed out it might be necessary. After a decade in power, though, she lost that ability and began to listen primarily to younger acolytes, especially on Europe. She was all for creating a single market in what was called then the European community, but instinctively against deepening political ties, creating a more federal Europe. Her language was blunt on the issue. In Parliament, the pro-Europe side of the Tory party was fairly strong. She cut them out of her inner circle, and it ultimately cost her her premiership. From that moment to this, the Conservative Party has been declining into the narrow, anti-Europe faction it is today. This week has been a time to think about why. The shallow pool from which the party's decision-makers are drawn has certainly played a role. Almost every key person involved in the self-incineration of the Conservative Party this week is a graduate of a single university in one 15-year period, Oxford. Former Prime Minister David Cameron, who called the Brexit referendum, was a contemporary of Boris Johnson at Oxford. The pair were also at Eton at roughly the same time. The so-called Minister for Brexit, Michael Gove, was there as well. Johnson's newly notorious special advisor, Dominic Cummings, went a few years after them and was a contemporary of George Osborne, Cameron's Chancellor of the Exchequer and the enabler of austerity. There are others, many of them now in Johnson's cabinet, but I won't bore you with a list. Americans my age will know the dangers of having such a narrow group around the cabinet table. It's what led to the deepening of the Vietnam War during the Kennedy and Johnson administrations. In the media, this Oxford crew were being mythologized before they had accomplished much. Another rough Oxford contemporary, Toby Young, wrote a television docudrama called When Boris Met Dave about the two men's rivalry for the top spot going back to their Oxford days. It aired in 2009. To what degree it functioned as a bit of free election advertising for Cameron in 2010 is something academic historians can ponder in a few decades. Editors, columnists, some serious, some propaganda swirl at Oxford, frequently reading, or majoring in American terms, in the same courses during this 15-year period. These are the major opinion formers in Britain and in the U.S., among them Mark Thompson, former director general of the BBC, current CEO of the New York Times, Chris Evans, editor of the extremely Brexit Daily Telegraph, and Catherine Viner, editor of the pro-Remain Guardian newspaper. At one level, this is just a continuation of the status quo. Oxford has had an outsized influence in shaping the British establishment. In the last 50 years, Britain has had 12 prime ministers, 10 earned their undergraduate degrees at the university. By comparison, in the same half century, only one of 10 American presidents attended Harvard as an undergraduate, John F. Kennedy. 
but having grown up in a time of stability, and as playwright David Hare called it, plenty, this decade's group, Cameron, Theresa May, Boris Johnson, do not bring the same life experience to politics. They have not had the experience of war. Margaret Thatcher and Harold Wilson and Edward Heath, all Oxford grads, were shaped by the experience of World War II and the Great Depression. The worst event in the modern trio's coddled lifetimes was the crash of 2008, and they were not in office then. Their contemporaries at Oxford, and at private schools before Oxford, who went into the city, or the law firms that service the city, were bailed out by the Labour government. A beery junior common room riff in the 1980s, the EU is bad, or Germany is winning World War II 50 years later via a federal Europe, can very quickly become a political dogma. No life experience to challenge anything, until achieving power and then coming up against reality. Another important factor in the Tory disintegration has been the absence of a viable opposition. Although it has a parliamentary political system, Britain, like the US, is essentially a two-party state. A strong opposition, capable of winning the next election, imposes discipline on a governing party. It restrains its more radical instincts. The opposition acts as a buttress for the whole political edifice of the society. Take away the buttress and politics can collapse. Since 2015, the opposition Labour Party has been led by Jeremy Corbyn, who is not seen as a viable prime minister. Even as the Tory party collapses, it still leads Labour by 10 points in this week's opinion polls, and Johnson is significantly more popular than Corbyn. So there is no restraint on Johnson and Dominic Cummings and Alistair Heath's worst instincts. This chaos was foreshadowed earlier in the decade when Cameron allowed the Scots to hold a referendum on independence. It was a remarkably close-run thing. Cameron campaigned in his relaxed fashion. Charm had got him far in life, so why not think little effort and just being a good guy wouldn't win one more time? But polls going into the home stretch showed that the Scots just might bolt and break up what is arguably the first modern example of a federal state, the United Kingdom. Cameron drafted in former Prime Minister Gordon Brown, a Scot, but not a nationalist, who barnstormed on behalf of the Union, and in the end, the vote for independence was defeated. During that campaign, I spoke with Michael White, former assistant editor of The Guardian, and a man who knows more about British politics and society than anybody I know. He warned that the Scottish referendum would awaken English nationalism. And that is something you do not want to do, he said. He was right. Leaving the EU was not something consuming the country when Cameron called the referendum on Britain's continued membership of the group. It was consuming his party but not the country. But once the election was called, English nationalism burst out, and as Mike White said, it got ugly fast. At the end of the first week of September, public discourse is now at a level of vitriol I have observed only in countries on the verge of, or in the midst of, civil war. And it's not possible to see how the UK, or more specifically, England will ever come back together as it placidly, phlegmatically was. Not quite a year ago, I gave a talk on Brexit to the Providence, Rhode Island Committee on Foreign Relations. 
I ended the talk by saying, no one knows what will happen, and if you invite me back in six months, when Britain was originally scheduled to leave the EU, nobody will know what is happening then. It's still the case. Nobody knows what will happen with Brexit in the second week of September, or even who the Prime Minister will be at the end of the week. What I do know is that I will put out another First Rough Draft of History podcast summarizing the events. And that's all for this one. You can hear more, lots more at the website, www.goldfarbpod.com. Please visit and please join others in making a donation. Even small ones help keep the podcasts coming. Thanks.